Welcome to First Baptist Church Decatur's Sermon of the Week. Today's sermon is from Reverend Dr. David Gushing. So today we're in our second series, second in the series on the cross here in Lent. We have a cross in front of us. There will be cross uh, pictures going um, week by or week by week and moment by moment here on the on the screens. And again, I will ask you the question that I started with last week: What do you see when you look at the cross? What do you see? What do you feel when you look at the cross? What do you think when you look at the cross? It's all of that. It's something about what we see. It's something about what we feel, and it's something about what we think that is always at stake whenever we gather to think about the cross. We saw last week that when Paul looked at the cross, one thing he saw was the culmination of the Jewish sacrificial system. Christ, for Paul, in Romans 3, became the once-for-all atoning sacrifice for human sin. All of those sacrifices of the Old Testament system, by his death on the cross, Jesus capped them all, ended that system, and atoned for all human sins, including yours and mine. And I said last week that our only proper response is 100% wholehearted trust, obedience, and commitment. But this is not the only thing that Paul saw when he looked at the cross. Our passage for today reveals something else that he saw. And what I'm going to do this morning is, is do an exposition of this complicated passage in Ephesians 2. So you might want to have your Bible with you. It won't be on the screen and, and then I, I'm going to turn and offer some direct moral applications for us. Our title is The Cross as Peacemaking. So we'll work on our biblical exegesis muscles today. When Paul looked at the cross, in Ephesians 2 at least, what he saw was God making peace. In this violent act of Jesus nailed to a Roman cross, Paul saw God making peace. The paradox is always there in the cross. This horrible, violent act, Paul saw God making peace. God making peace between God and humanity, between God and each individual. But also, in this passage, we see God making peace between Jews and Gentiles. The two main groups in the mental world, especially of Jewish people like Paul, but also of Gentile people. Gentile just means non-Jew. So from a certain framework, there are two in the first century, there are two groups of people in the world, Jews and Gentiles. And Paul, operating out of that framework, says God made peace between the two ancient divided groups in the world. And I think we have very good reason, very sound biblical reason to today expand beyond Paul to see the cross as the place where God makes peace between all groups of people. In our passage for today, Paul is pondering the existence of a new kind of human community in the world. Mixed Jewish and Gentile communities 
of faith that he was helping to create in the Mediterranean basin, these mixed Jewish-Gentile communities were the first churches outside of the Palestinian territory. The one thing that united them was their shared belief in Jesus. But it was always very hard. Jews and Gentiles were so different, not just in religion, if we understand religion to be beliefs, but in everything about their way of life, in their matrix of customs and practices, in what they ate and how they ate and where they went and what they worshipped, in, in uh, everything was different. Jews had been taught to keep separate from Gentiles. Many Gentiles were very happy to return the favor. Many Jews had been taught a kind of religious contempt for Gentiles. And many Gentiles were happy to return the contempt. To try to build a community uniting Jews and Gentiles was a very difficult challenge. In Ephesus, there was at least one such congregation that contained that same uneasy mix of Jews and Gentiles that I just described. Paul is trying to find ways to help them understand why their unity is even possible. In fact, why their unity is mandatory. And his argumentation requires us to go back into a different world 2,000 years ago in Ephesus to understand what they were dealing with so that then we can understand what this means for us. So at verse 11, Paul, writing to the Gentiles in this newly formed Christian community, says, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision. By the way, this was a big deal. Teenagers, you can have your parents explain this to you at home, okay? I won't really try to say more about that now. But people called each other names based on their circumcision status or not. Fortunately, David Tyler hasn't called me a name based on circumcision status in a long time, which I really appreciate. And anyway, remember that you were at that time, Paul says to the Gentiles, at that time, without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Talking to the Gentiles, he reminds them where they came from. It's very poignant. He says, you were aliens from Israel, the community of covenant with God. You were without hope. You were without God. You were far, far away. And we who were proud of our Jewishness, Paul thinks to himself, we're glad that we were not you. Not like you people. But something has changed, Paul says. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. And how have they been brought near? By the blood of Christ. Christ is Greek for Messiah. Paul is saying the Jewish Messiah has reached out to all those pagan Gentiles so far away, far off in the land of paganism and the worship of idols, far off in the land of um, immorality and idolatry and separation from God. Messiah Jesus has reached out for the Gentiles by his blood. You know, if you remember the, the Gospels, Jesus did some reaching out to the Gentiles during his ministry. But that's not really what Paul's talking about here. What he's talking about 
is that at the cross of Jesus, God reached out to the Gentiles. On a hill far away, near the city dump, outside the walls of Jerusalem, a Jewish Messiah was crucified by Rome. And this, says Paul, is the event by which the Son of God has brought the Gentiles near. What a paradox. What a story. And Paul goes on to say, he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made us one. He has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He is our peace. Paul is saying that the peace that has been now possible between Gentiles and God is through Jesus on that cross. And the peace that is now breaking out between Gentiles and Jews in the church is in Jesus Christ. He is the peace and the only ground of our peace. It is not anything else. And Jews and Gentiles know this because they know there is no other way they could be together in a community. It is only because of Jesus. He is the peace between God and people. He is the peace between Gentiles and Jews. In his flesh he has done this. His wounded flesh. His crucified flesh. In one of the most violent acts that the ancient world knew, God has made healing and peace happen. All those dividing walls that had existed, and those walls were very high, the dividing walls of hostility have been, sh- have been shattered by the blood of Jesus. And now they are becoming one community. And he wasn't just being theoretical. These, these folks are now actually learning to be a community together. Paul goes on. He has abolished the law that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility. Ironically, though it shouldn't surprise us, one major source of the Jewish-Gentile divide was Jewish law. It was religion. Religion sometimes divides, doesn't it? Jewish law kept Jews and Gentiles physically and spiritually apart because it was unlawful for Jews to even be in the same home with Gentiles. They couldn't eat together. They couldn't worship together. They couldn't be in community. And the law signaled that God had chosen one people, not all people, one people to make covenant with. And everybody else was second class. At least that was how it was often interpreted. Paul says God has now abolished the law. What a shocking statement. The obstacles, the religious obstacles that had divided Jews and Gentiles have been overcome. Peace has been made. Reconciliation has occurred. We are one new humanity. These old divisions had to die, and they died with Jesus at the cross. And when they did, the centuries-long building of the wall between Jews and Gentiles has now begun to be unbuilt. In fact, it has been smashed. 17. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near, for through him both have access in one spirit to the Father. You know, you remember in Galatians, especially there, Paul talked about how proud he had once been of his Jewish heritage. 
He talked about you know, his lineage, his training as a rabbi, how proud he was of how serious he was about his faith. But then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when he did, he realized that his religious pride was a snare and a trap. And Jesus turned him around, and Jesus changed everything. And Jesus now means that both Jews and Gentiles can gain access to God in exactly the same way. No advantage for Jews. Those who had been far away, worshiping in temples in Rome, get to, get to be welcomed into the family. Those who had been near practicing Torah get to be welcomed into the family. Nobody has any advantage. Both gain access in the same way through the blood of Jesus. No one has any grounds to boast about anything because it's all grace. And it doesn't matter what family you were born into or what your ethnicity was or what your tribe was or where you came from, everybody enters the same way. So Paul says in 19, so you are no longer strangers and aliens to the Gentiles. You are now citizens with the saints, members of the household, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. So the good news for Gentiles, again, is you're in the family now. You're in the family. You are not second class. We are all children of God on the same basis. You are not far away. If you want to talk about citizenship, you're fellow citizens on the same basis with Jews. You want to talk about salvation, you're all saved by grace. You want to talk about what the church is? Well, the church is like a temple. The cornerstone is Christ Jesus. The foundation is the apostles and prophets. And we are the bricks, all of us, being built up to the sky. Gentile bricks and Jewish bricks, Roman, Greek, Palestinian, African, Asian. Together we are the church. We are the temple. The temple in Jerusalem doesn't matter anymore. The temples in Rome and Ephesus don't matter anymore. We are the temple that is being built. We are where God dwells. The holiest place in the world is here. Not the building, but the community. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. It's a pretty nice message, don't you think? And now I want to talk about some implications of what Paul is saying that take us from about 50 A.D. to about 1963. I will tell you a story of a friend of mine. In 1963, leaders at Mercer University in Macon, the school that I teach at, decided that it was time to racially integrate that grand old university. They chose to admit a man named Sam Oney. He was an African who knew about Mercer because he had been a convert to Christianity through Southern Baptist missionary efforts. So he applied, and he was accepted. And in the fall of 1963, he uh, enrolled at Mercer. Sam has told me that for the most part, the students and staff and faculty at Mercer were, ter- were very hospitable to him. 
and that his experience as a student was a positive one. And Mercer can be proud of that. And Mercer is proud of that. Where Sam ran into trouble was in the local Baptist churches. On his first Sunday morning in Macon, Sam went with his white roommate, a basketball player, to a local Baptist church. Being a good Baptist kid, on his very first Sunday in Macon, he decided to walk the aisle with his friend at the invitation. Both were presenting themselves for membership. Both came down the long, scary aisle. I wonder what color the carpets were. They came down the aisle and they stood at the front. They were doing what they had been invited to do by the pastor. They were doing what Sam knew you're supposed to do if you're a good Baptist. You join the church in the town that you're moving into, right? So, you know, in Baptist churches, what we do is some form of vote. So the congregation had to decide what to do that morning. Admitting the white freshman was not a problem. He was approved by voice vote on the spot. But while Sam, 18 years old, in another country, product of Southern Baptist missionary efforts, stood at the front, a debate broke out among the congregation over whether he should be approved. He would be the first black member of this Macon church. Sam reports that numerous very unkind and ugly things were said from the floor of the congregation about what the consequences would be for the church if a black person were allowed to join. In the end, that morning, after a long discussion, Sam was approved for membership on a close vote. But he never felt fully welcome, and he never quite recovered from the experience of attempting to join a white church on equal terms with his new white roommate. Anyone who knows anything about 1963 knows that for 1963, this was a relatively good outcome. There was no violence that morning. There were no riots. Sam was, after all, approved. But he was approved in a context in which it had been made quite clear to this 18-year-old that his skin color meant that he was not quite as welcome as his roommate. It took a very long time for a whole lot of churches, including our own tradition, to recognize that Jesus Christ is our peace that he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between black and white, that in Christ we are one new humanity, and that is all that matters. Folks thought that there were actually two humanities at the time, white and black, not quite the same. They hadn't quite learned that there is only one humanity, that in the church the only color that matters, you might say, is the color red the color of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. Human beings are stubborn. We've had to relearn over and over again that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That Christ died for those who were far off, which is all of us. And if we think we're near, then we're really in trouble. That the church is the new humanity in which every earthly status and identity distinction is washed away. In which, for example, women and men are equally part of that holy temple being built to the sky. 
in which people of Native and European and African and Latino and Asian and any other heritage and any mix of heritages are part of that temple being built to the sky. People who are gay or straight, trans or questioning or uncertain or none of the above are part of the temple being built to the sky. People who are rich or poor, successful or unsuccessful in worldly terms, on equal terms at the foot of the cross. Working class or professional class, those whose addiction problems are obvious and those whose addiction problems are not so obvious. Democrats, independents, and Republicans, people with U.S. passports, British passports, no passport or a green card. People who are in prison and people who have never been in prison. People who arrive in wheelchairs and people who do the marathon next week. Am I making myself clear? When we look at one another here, we don't see any of that. What we see is a forgiven sinner saved by grace. What we know is that here we are one family, one new humanity gathered around the cross, completely dependent on the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Nobody with any advantage over anybody else. The only people in trouble being those who forget that. What we see as we look around is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and that Jesus died for all. What we see is Jesus, his arms stretched wide between heaven and earth, welcoming all of us back home to God. And what we want to be in this church is that kind of community that doesn't have to relearn that lesson ever again. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. He is our peace. He has reconciled the two and made of them one new humanity. One family. Sisters and brothers. No distinctions. The meaning of the cross, at least one of them. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's Sermon of the Week. Be sure to follow us online at fbcdecatur.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a blessed week.